abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. In January of 2019, I was in London to interview Dr. Michael Gilmont. We met in a small studio on a freezing winter day. Dr. Gilmont is a research fellow at the University of Oxford Environmental Change Institute and is a research associate of INSIS. A trained hydrologist and economist, he looks into the politics, economics and hydrological facts in his analysis of water resource development. Israel is one of the countries he researched and was happy to share his take on the most intricate ingredients that make up the Israeli model, legislation, pricing and structure. I began by asking how well does he think the Israeli water system works? I think Israel, Israeli water managers will be the first to admit that things work until they don't work. And uh, the country experienced a series of crises every 10 years from the mid-1980s, punctuated by it's okay, we can carry on, which is almost a perfect example of what in the literature is known as the hydroelogical cycle of, um, you know, rain, everyone's happy, things are going on nicely, there's a drought, there's a panic, we have to do something, we're on the verge of doing something, and then the rains come again, uh, and you resume normal normal behaviour. That said, I think as much as my own research has looked at, certainly over the last 20, 25 years, there have been a number of substantive changes, both within the triad and, and within the technical side of the country's water management system. Answering your question, does it work? It is proven to work. Let's see what and when the next crisis is. I think, again, my, my answer is, is conditioned by see the depth of the, of the next crisis. There is certainly a high degree of, of resilience um, within the system, and I think a lot of intelligence, this probably comes down to those working within the structure rather than the structure itself, and an awareness at, at critical junctures of the need for sort of for proactive change and for recognizing how far change can be pushed at any one time um, meaning well so looking at the ongoing debates and tensions over the revision of agricultural water pricing potentially there is a recognition that things have been pushed too far in this grand scheme of sort of uniform pricing meaning the stress on agriculture certainly in the north is too much in the in the current climate whether that's an actual re- fact of reality or that's a fact of, of political discourse i don't know but the fact that there does appear to be a sensitivity that okay let's see how this how this can actually be made to work and how this can be sensitively um pursued effectively meaning that the farmer is saying the water now is way too expensive for water us water will become way too expensive for them it's not for me to pass judgment on that but that is the current state of the of the political discourse there appears to be enough intelligence within the water management system and agriculture to to come to some kind of sustainable agreement on that going back to your question does the system work and again it comes down to in terms of the triad it comes down to resilience and adaptability 
again, looking over the last 25, 30 years, there's a very strong structure. There's a very strong commitment through various generations of managers to pursue different targets. But I think there is also a prevalence of pragmatism at key moments. And I think almost the greatest strength of the Israeli model is that political, technical and economic pragmatism can surface and cool heads can prevail. And I think the general success of the Israeli water story is testament to that. Now, I can't say whether that is by design or by luck or by, yeah, again, sort of serendipity of having the right people in the right place. You could say that is some kind of inherent genetic design. Um, but that's how things seem to be working out. You started talking about, you said, I'm not going to say if it's true or not, uh, about the prices that farmers are supposed to pay. Hmm. Waterline is quite honest about promoting the idea of you should pay for water. Yeah. You should pay for what you consume. Yeah. But I'm going to question this. Should you pay? Well, I mean, at a fundamental domestic level, there's this argument of sort of water as a human right. And mm-hmm. why should you pay for something which is so fundamental to your existence as a physical living being? Well, I think, what are you paying for when you're paying for, for water? You're paying for a service delivery. You're paying for the treatment of that water. You're paying for the conveyance of that water, the energy used to pump and pressurize that water, the energy used to treat that water and allow it to be reused within the domestic sector, within the agricultural sector, in order to not pollute the environment and therefore provide a uh, sustainable environmental base for both human and natural life. So it's almost that you are paying for the cost of provision and for the use and impact of your use of, of, of that of that water. Your question is, should we be paying for that? And um, which comes down to sort of deeper questions, I guess, about, you know, what what should be paid for by the individual and what should be provided by the uh, by the state. That is difficult to answer. I mean, you could say that, well, even state provision, if someone has to pay for that energy, if the state provides it, that will come through state revenues and through through tax. So then you get into questions of, okay, a state could provide water resources and then could be backed up by a very progressive taxation system. Okay, fine. Or a non-progressive taxation system. Somebody has to pay for the conveyance and treatment of that water. When you're talking about someone has to pay, usually it means subsidies. Even in a state like Israel, that we've been paying for water, huh. you know, since day one of the yeah. state. What about places where people don't pay for water at all? In one of mm-hmm. the previous episodes, we talked about the fact that politicians should be brave. <laughs> yes, politicians should be brave. Politicians should also be pragmatic because it's not a popular thing to to put a levy on water or it is to... not it is not the fundamental question is not so much what instrument is used but what is the outcome that you're trying to get from that instrument and yes yeah basic economic principles and the use of price plus other instruments has been shown to work if pursuing that policy would result in a level of social and political risk which is Uh, unpalatable, undesirable or unintolerable uh, then maybe it isn't the right instrument for 
that time. Maybe it can be an aspiration, but it might be foolhardy to rush headlong into a program of, of pricing if society and the political economy cannot tolerate it. Or indeed, if it could tolerate it, if, you know, yes, there'll be acceptance of the principle, but it'll just be flouted to the extent that it's not worth pursuing. So I think more fundamental questions on the relationship between state and society and the sort of social contract of the state and the extent to which potentially there are more fundamental changes and strengthenings required before water pricing could be either effective or tolerated. So again, you know, going back to the Israeli case, you, know, you say you've been paying for water from day one, yes, but there's also been a very strong relationship between state and society from from day one society sort of gave birth to the state and the state has molded society in a, in a way that's um, probably very rare for a, a modern country to have um, grown up in, in such a short space of space of time so yeah pricing works in the right political economy context and i think the questions need to be asked is does the instrument fit the context or does some more work need to be required on the context before the instrument can be put into into place so if uh, we are trying to suggest this path from the Israeli model to other places in the world? I think the most valuable part of the Israeli model is the balance of policy, economic and technical instruments pursued at the right time, by design or by luck, and with a great deal of sensitivity, again, by design or by luck, and a willingness to be flexible and to adapt and to acknowledge, either acknowledge or to have voices prevail who say that, okay, yes, this is a good idea. Desalination is a good idea. Maybe not immediately, for better or worse, in terms of continued uh, overdraft and, and, and deficit. How can we think intelligently about rolling this out? How can we go at a pace at which people are comfortable? Um, how can we bring other people with us? Um, how can this discussion between ministries of finance, ministries of agriculture happen and evolve to bring kind of a sustainable pathway of, of policy? And for me, the creation of that space of political dialogue within a sector is actually the most important lesson that the Israeli water sector can provide to the world always is as important let's say as the kind of more technical instruments that it's that it's used so we kind of talked about the pricing let's uh, turn this triad clockwise mm -hmm. and now we have in front of us the structure now when we're talking about structure is both the physical one and something which is derived from legislation but mm. we won't talk about legislation just now let's talk about the structure both the physical and mm. the institutional mm. it seems to be working okay although as we heard in the previous episode there's something about the responsiveness of this sector in the span of the 70 years to find the right solutions for the times let's start with 1959 and go from there there are two major changes done mm. If the starting point is 1959... mobilization of water through the completion of the national water carrier. And then we get to the year 2000, and then we have another one in the late 2000s. I think there's another point in the middle, which is the 1980s and the adoption of policies to significantly reuse 
wastewater in agriculture. That combined with desalination, obviously two large new supply increments, which I think historically, let's say, had that policy somehow by uh, some uh, warping of, uh, of space-time and, and technological know-how been implemented 30, 40, 50 years ago, that would have been used on top of the natural resource endowment. And the trick or the very astute policy that has been uh, that has been pursued again design and, and necessity has been to use treated wastewater plus desalination as a means of not only growing the national volumetric capacity but also allowing less dependence on the natural water endowment so effectively putting water back into the environment by default of not taking it out effectively creating a bigger pie creating a bigger pie but completely changing the balance of the ingredients and using fewer of your original ingredients. But going back to your original comment, so I think actually another point to make within the context of management is the scale at which Israel has operated. What I mean by this is the both volumes of water that Israel had at its disposal has been required to manage and also the spatial scale at which that is taking place. You didn't really like me asking you this about pricing, if it can work on its own, if we take just the pricing and try to implement it somewhere else in the world. What about the structure part out of the triad? Can it work somewhere else in the world on its own? <laughs> in the abstract, Probably yes, but again, my my argument on sort of pricing came back to political context and state society relationships, and in terms of the structure and the political economy of government and governance of natural resources, I think political context is important. I would say not can this structure work in other places in the world, but how can the lessons of the structure, what elements of the structure, uh, what inspiration from the structure could be used to inform a politically and economically appropriate model for other contexts. So again, this comes back to something that Israel itself has demonstrated, resilience and adaptability and responsiveness uh, to new and emergent management challenges. Um, so I think it's the structure and the recognition of responsiveness. So this, in this case, Israel's responsiveness is over time. Um, if you want to apply the structure elsewhere, the responsiveness seems to be in the context. And I think then that comes to a deeper lesson that Israel and other successful water management cases around the world could teach, which is how to be responsive, how to adapt what you have had to meet changing demands and changing contexts. And I think that is really underplayed by those who try and identify what lessons can be learned. That responsiveness, that political and policy and management adaptation somehow gets lost with the promotion of a, this is our model, this is the structure, this is what you should be doing. I think... It's almost that the process is as important as the as the end point. My key message really is that issue of resilience and adaptiveness over time and how that same philosophy can be applied for lessons and exemplification elsewhere in the world, taking into account the 
political uniqueness in many cases of other contexts and the need to, I think, work with political contexts for managing water rather than working against them. After the break, we will hear about some trust issues we all have, quite unknowingly, with infrastructure systems. Wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel Newtech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewTech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. to the special interview with Dr. Michael Gilmont. We're taking the triad and we're taking it clockwise once more for the last time now. We got to the legislative part of our conversation, which is usually the most, I, I don't think it's boring, but usually people really run away from it because it sounds heavy. Now, there's something about the Israeli law that is quite different to the rest of the world. As you said, I like the way you phrased it, that the state of Israel was created from... The state of Israel was born out of a society who founded it, but has then gone on to shape that society. And one of the strongest ethos we had in Israel, Israel was and still largely is to some parts of it a very socialistic uh, in nature and water in Israel is owned by the public yes. as I mentioned in one of previous episodes an Israeli owns the water only in the space between the end of his tap and the intake of the sewage in his sink or to be more precise he owns the right to use that water because so, of course in theory I believe unless the law has changed it is technically illegal to wash your dishes and then capture that water and use it to flush your toilet or to certainly to capture rainwater which is a slightly different context but you're not yeah, mistaken so you have the right to use that water <laughs> so i have the right to use the water in only 15 centimeters span that's for some people it's weird it's unheard of i mean if i own the land i own what's ever above it and underneath it mm, yeah. and in this context it's changing not only the law or the way in which you enforce it, it's a discussion on a completely different level. So we might call this legislation, but this is something that is far deeper. Yeah. No, I think what is incredible, I think it's incredible both in potential and the degree to which it obviously isn't actualized. The potential is that the 1959 water law and subsequent amendments place the ownership of water and the allocation of water in the hands of the state or the state's nominated representative. Yes, if you own land, you have no right to that water. So in theory, you don't have right to harvest the water that falls on your roof. 
What this means is that, again, in theory, the state has absolute jurisdiction over where the water goes. If it wanted, all of the water could be allocated to grow bananas. bananas. And, you know, the population would have to buy bottles of Evian imported from, from France. Obviously, that's not going to happen. The converse side is that, in theory, if the state wanted, they could eliminate agriculture and say all of this water is going to be used to allow urban growth, to allow everyone, if they've got enough land, to have a swimming pool. Obviously, that's not going to happen, but the potential is there for that to happen. I think what's amazing is that there is a relatively stable middle ground in terms of allocation from one year to the next, allowing for environmental variation. And I think what this says in sort of more challenging contexts where there are very complex ownership structures related to land and water, an example of the complexity of water ownership and diversity of water use rights, shall we say, and the ownership of water use rights of so the Western United States, California, a huge complexity of first in right, first in lines, your right to use water depending on when you first develop that resource, the right of water connected with, with land ownership. Obviously, it's now part of the discourse. Yeah. It's been so for the past at least two and a half decades, three decades that people are talking about it. Hmm. Do you see this as a preparation for some change? I think there is an argument that change could be helpful. Again, um, if you look at the political feasibility and reality and pragmatism of doing something about it, what other options are there to achieve similar outcomes through less contentious means? And I think that is probably the most sensible path. But coming back to the Israeli case, I think what is demonstrated is that even when you have absolute control of water vested in the state, that does not mean that the state is necessarily going to do bad things for you as a historic user of that water. In, a, in the 60 years since the water law was passed, um, yes, agriculture has received proportionately less water, but there is still a strong agricultural sector in the country. But um, one might say that the stress brought on this sector made them become more efficient. Yes, and so innovation out of necessity. Uh, I think it was a co-evolution of necessity and the inherent drive to innovate. It's a balance. It's a balance of stress as a driver for innovation and stress, you know, it's just as you, you, can, you can stress a plant through drip irrigation such that it produces a more uh, multiplicitous crop and you can stress it such that it dies and it's about finding that balance and I think again yes I'm sure that there have been moments when that line might have been crossed and uh, looking at the current pricing reforms I think that's that's very very contentious at the moment but taking the long view on, uh, on, on Israeli water history and allocation generally that balance has been struck and there does appear to have been a sensitivity you know you think things can be pushed in what in hindsight appears to be a healthy direction but yeah it's 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 proven to be sustainable so we're talking here about this flexibility again again just flexibility, as but i think also flexibility and trust in that flexibility again in the, the theoretical absolute control of water by the state in uh, as as mandated by the water law appears for the most part not to have been abused in the 60 years 
in which it's been uh, it's been extant. So I think that teaches a very powerful lesson about what can happen in the right contexts with cool heads. Reality is that Israel is a small country, and such legislation can only be effective in a small place. I don't see India with its 1.3 billion people, 29 states and seven more unities mm. of part of the mm. greater India being able to work with such a law. You are probably right. The answer there would be clearly something different. I do not have it for you. Um, But if you're taking the notion of publicly owned water, is that something that can work in any legislative environment? This is a, another case of the context of the relationship between the state and the government and the people. Part of the challenge of, of much larger countries is that there is that greater distance between a farmer using the water and the legislator in either the state or, or national government making making those laws and therefore because of that distance there's therefore essentially less trust by the farmer and potentially less engagement and awareness by the legislator believe it or not we've managed to go through the three nodes of the triad you've come full circle and there's something that was in the air and something that you can alluded to trust can this triad work without trust I think trust is important within the triad within life within politics and I think uh, within the uh, Middle East region as a whole trust is a very profound and crucial concept I think it would be very difficult for it to work without trust I don't necessarily say kind of overt explicit trust um, because that can kind of come and go depending on individuals involved but I think a trust that the system generally works and has a history of working um, so just backtracking a minute I think trust is very profound if I'm a householder waking up in the morning turning on my tap to wash to have a cup of tea I want to trust that there is water there I do invariably trust that there's water there and on the very few occasions as a Londoner when I turn my tap on and find there isn't water normally because I haven't read the note saying they're interrupting supply it's a bit of a shock but trust is a basic premise for, for taking something for granted if I'm a farmer I think more more significantly I need to trust that I'm going to be getting water assume within the bounds of hydrological normality and infrastructural resilience I need to trust that I'm getting water water both for my year-to-year -year investments and my long-term investments and I think if that trust is eroded there becomes a lot less latitude for the agricultural community to be willing to invest to adapt if there's a feeling that this is this investment is just going to be sliced further in future years then what's the incentive for me to kind of keep adapting and keep building that resilience so I think that is absolutely crucial but it seems to me from what you're the way in which you see this triad within the model is that it is malleable enough and adaptive enough and elastic enough to withstand even the stressors that it created 
Correct. As with all these things, I think a system, a relationship, a bit political or economic, is only is 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 resilient up until the point that it isn't. And the problem with all these things is you can't prove something until it has happened. That's the the challenge of climate change: is that we won't actually know the impacts of climate change potentially until they've happened, and therefore an absolute watertight case for mitigation can't be made until you have the the end point, at which case it's too late to mitigate. So if I'll ask in one sentence, what do you make of the the triad within the Israeli model of legislation, pricing and structure? Is it wrong to try to create this triad? Is it too simplistic? I think it is a little too simplistic in that within legislation, pricing and structure, you are potentially either missing or underplaying the role of politics, both formal politics within the legislative process, politics between sectors, the relationship between society and government and regulators. And I think the triad is maybe better visualized as a, a sort of the edge of a, a spider's web of political mesh uh, that spans that landscape. If you say it's part of a spider's web, politics are politics, but players are different everywhere. Mm. So you cannot make a rule about it, right? But as you said, in the spider's web, if you aim for this, let's say, area, yeah. then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think there is a need to look and consider politics. Quite often when we say politics, it's, I don't want to say a dirty word, but it is put forward as something that gets in the way, something that is an obstacle to achieving what theory tells us we should be able to. And a lot of my work, my research and my analytical work, is based on this idea that politics is the process by which things happen. And the triad is only what it is by those political relationships, by the political navigations that need to take place between those nodes to generate outcomes that, for the most part in, in, in the Israeli case, um, have proven very resilient and adaptable. Dr. Michael Gilmont, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media Production.